in trouble. Funny to see you here. We're in trouble. Good morning. I am Pastor Mike, and this is Pastor Scott Martin, and we're going to be teaming up to tackle our last week of the Why series, where we've been diving into y'all's questions. And that's because this last question... Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's been a hoot. I've really enjoyed it. And this one is an easy one. We're, e we're really <laughs> closing things up. Don't even need to talk about this, really, which is simply, what if we're wrong about our faith? Cool. E easy peasy, lemon yeah. squeezy, yeah. <laughs> and this question is both simultaneously ancient and somewhat unique to our times. Because, on one hand, doubt has existed for as long as humans have held beliefs. But on the other hand, the church finds itself in a very unique place in the 21st century where it is grappling with this phenomenon mm -hmm. called the deconstruction movement. This movement where Christians, mostly from American evangelicalism, but a lot of denominations, are kind of in mass deconstructing their childhood faith traditions, mm -hmm. questioning them, throwing out long-held ideas and assumptions, and at times even leaving Christianity all together. And again, some aspects of this are new. For example, that it has a name of a movement or that it's taking place largely through the internet. But again, it's also not really that new at all. For as long as Christianity's existed, both individual Christians and the church as a community has been confronted with these cycles of reformation, challenge, and sometimes having to admit we're wrong. Which shouldn't be shocking, right? right. Humans are nothing if not fallible. In fact, to highlight this, Scott and I want to kick things off by sharing some lists we created which uh, highlight moments in history where human beings were 100% sure about something that was absolutely false. And I believe, Scott, you're going to kick us off. I'm going to go, I've got two different ones for two different services, so just be prepared. Come back for the 11. Yeah, this, this one I'm not going to share the 11 because it, it'll make your stomach squeeze a little bit. We all know about bleeding as an ancient form of medical cure, right? There is a belief that if you had, I'm not joking about this, if you had a bleeding hemorrhoid, you were holy because it was a natural way of God providing holiness for you. But if you were too holy and it never stopped, they would seal it with a burning hot iron. Ooh. Don't you love your doctor right now? Yeah, my medicine, <laughs> huzzah. Well, here's a good one. In 1614, Tommaso Cassini, a super influential Italian preacher, gave this heated sermon that was distributed throughout all of Europe in which he condemned this new idea that he deemed repugnant and fundamentally antithetical to the Christian faith, arguing that those who defended it were possessed by Satan and must be banished from all Christian lands. <laughs> who wants to guess what idea he was upset about? <laughs> Galileo, the heliocentric model of the unit, our galaxy. He was upset because someone had the audacity to say that the Earth was not the center of the universe. <laughs> Bingo, bango, right? Ding, ding, ding. What about this? Okay. So, railroads, railways. Uh-huh. Been on one? Yeah. <laughs> There's a belief that if you went over 40 miles an hour, your brains would leak out of your ears. And so no one dared ever ride a, a, a train until, of course, somebody actually did and they came off. I think we're all okay, right? We, no. all, got, we all got here <laughs> over 40 miles an hour at some point in our commute, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's really funny. This is a related to that, actually. So um, when they were starting to test flight and trying to become the first humans to take off the ground and fly, there was a strong Christian movement against the attempts to fly because, and I quote, Genesis said that the sky belongs to birds <laughs> and God would strike down any human with the audacity to, like Babel, try to reach for the heavens again. <laughs> 
Which happens. I'm yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Go on. All right, I got one more. I got one more. Okay. This is a quick hitter one, okay? I'm going to lift off four dates, okay? Okay. 1891, 1914, 1999, party, and 2060, okay? Okay. 1891, the Mormons thought Jesus was coming back. Uh-huh. 1914, Jehovah's Witnesses thought Jesus was coming back. 1999, a guy named Jerry Falwell. And 2060, none other than Isaac Newton believed that Jesus was coming back in 2060 because he was obsessed with that number. That's so interesting. I thought you were going to say Scott. Well, yeah. that, that also could be the case. I tried to hit every denomination in, under that, that, those four dates. But that's, uh, you know, we think we're right, and then, uh, of course, we're wrong. Cool. Well, let's dive in. We've got one more, right? Yeah, you got one more. I've got one more. And this one also has to do with bodily fluids. Um, in the 17th and 18th centuries, the scientific and religious communities widely believed in something called preformation, which is the idea that every creature, including humans, were created by God as like these biological Russian nesting dolls, or primarily that within every sperm was an exact replica of you today, but smaller, waiting to escape, at which point it would then start rapidly expanding to your full God-intended size. What is exactly the response to that? What if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? What if we're wrong? And all to say, we want to start off because we just want to acknowledge as we dive into this question, our own fallibility. And we want to engage this topic with humility. We want to recognize that we don't want to be those people who are just 100% sure that little Mike resides in the sperm just waiting to become Mike in the world, right? At the same time, we also want to acknowledge our limited understanding of the world, our biases, our subjectivity, mm-hmm. and how these can at times lead us to be very sure about something that is just not true. Mm-hmm. So our best hope for finding truth, I believe, won't be by becoming entrenched, defensive, or fearful of hard questions, but rather by in trust embracing their challenge with mm-hmm. open-mindedness, humility, and a willingness to wrestle as a pathway to growth. Amen? Amen. Amen. So with that, let's dive in. And let's start by exploring the concept of doubt and relatedly this act of questioning our beliefs that we've kind of been given through this deconstruction movie, or at least made to think about in a really intense way. Right. Scott, I guess, can it be or how can it be healthy to consistently question one's beliefs? Can this help us create the deep faith that E3 believes exists to foster in people? Absolutely. And I think that's, that's the, the concept that's sometimes foreign for us to think about, that if I have faith, I believe in something that I cannot maybe see, I can't touch, I can't taste. Uh, we believe, and as, I just love this. I was counseling a guy trying to witness to him to evangelize in my early 20s, and I thought I knew everything about Christianity because I had read the Bible. And I was going along, and he just stopped me in my tracks. And he says, hey, do you realize an unknown Jewish carpenter died for your sins? Doesn't that sound insane to you if you don't think about it from the lens in which you're coming at it from? And I kind of, oh, that, I, I doubted, but the amount of doubt that you have has to equal the amount of faith you have. And most of us think that we have to have this unbelievable faith, faith as small as a mustard seed. Yeah, but have it grow into that giant mustard tree, or as Paul states in Philippians, work out your fear with your, your salvation with fear and trembling, that there's this, this dualism, but it's almost paradoxical that I have to have doubt in order to have faith. Mm. And it's okay to have doubts, and it's actually really, really healthy to wrestle with those doubts, because when you do, it increases your faith. And so they go hand in hand together. They aren't separate. And so for this question that we saw, it's beautiful, because it makes me stop and question, if I'm wrong about all that we believe as a church, about Christianity, about Jesus, about the Holy Spirit, about all these crazy things, like we have seen 
in history that we have done, it's actually healthy. And I think we also have to pause and realize that we, in 2024, I said 2023 a few weeks ago. Yeah, 2024. Yeah, it was. What an idiot. 2024. (laughs) We have to realize that we are not the be-all, end-all of humanity. And yet, specifically as Western Americans in 2024, we think we have reached the pinnacle of this very moment, and I am the ultimate being uh, because we have so much technology. We have AI now, and we have cool cars, and we have the Super Bowl tonight. Go Chiefs. And it's just this idea of like, I am the, the, the sum total of all coolness until I realize that in 2060 or in 2160 or in 3,240, like that's hard to imagine there's going to be maybe a better version of humanity. And so I always have to question where I am in the moment and realize in the future it may be better, but also back in the year 6 and, and 30 and 80 and all the other years of the humanity, they knew some stuff too that maybe I don't understand. And so it's that humility that you mentioned that we have to come at this, that it's doubt and faith that are co-mixed that help us grow as a, as a Christian and as a person. Yeah, you want to add on to that? I love that, yeah. I mean, I really do. I mean, I think we often are taught to confuse faith with certainty. And yeah. that's like what it is. And if you don't have certainty, then you do not have faith. Which, but faith means trust, right? And trust in things that are unseen is the definite, like fundamentally not certainty, right? It, it's clearly something more than that. Um, and I know that, that was a big deal for me to realize because, you know, my childhood faith tradition, doubt was a four-letter word, right? To question anything was to be on a slippery road to hell, right? To think that the earth was, or to even ask if the earth was more than 4,000 years old or if dinosaurs were real. I was literally told I would burn in hell for asking those questions, for even considering that as true, right? And it's this very dogmatic view of religion that is profoundly unhelpful because one, I believe dinosaurs are real, one, but two, more importantly than that, um, everyone doubts. Yeah. So there's a problem, which is that it just fundamentally neglects what is obviously a part of the human experience. It teaches us to suppress that, which is obviously problematic because, I mean, for one, I, depending on how I woke up this morning, I may have more faith today than I did yesterday, right? right. There are moments where I have coffee and I'm just like, everything is meaningless. And then the next day, <laughs> Jesus is king of the universe, right? Uh, my mental state can determine that. So, but, but I think more than that, it just becomes counterproductive. If we suppress our doubts, if we let them fester, if we don't ask questions, they just go unresolved. They don't go away, right? right? And they certainly don't get addressed. And I mean, that's what led me, quite frankly, to leave Christianity entirely, is I was given a whole list of things I wasn't sure about and I was told not to ask about. And I was told if I believed any of them, I couldn't come back. So eventually I just chose not to come back, right? Which is why, quite frankly, I think I've changed my view on this entirely. I think I've come to this view that on some level, deconstruction or doubting or questioning is not only not dangerous, but I actually think it's an essential part, like you were saying, right. of developing healthy spirituality. When it's done right, I think it's just essential to making faith not just a list of ideas I was told to believe as a child, but into something that I actually hold, into something that I believe, into something I choose, into something I internalize and act upon. And on top of that, it can also become this healthy pruning, right? As I doubt, I ask questions about things that, quite frankly, y'all, are sometimes actually wrong. Sometimes the reason you're unsure and uncomfortable about the thing you were taught as a kid is because it is not good. It is a broken view of God, yourself, the world, and there's a pruning that can actually take place as we internalize our faith in which we actually come out the other side with a more pure, honest, right, truthful 
vision of what it means to be a person of faith. And I think that's just so important. So all to say, deconstruction, doubt, questionings, these things can be good tools. Absolutely. And I think to add on to that real quick, when you think about the 12 disciples, their whole journey, if you really read the, the four Gospels, it's constant doubt. It's not just Thomas. I mean, they're always like, are you really the king? Are you really truly him? And it's this process that we sometimes think we have to somehow start out with 100% faith, zero doubt. Yeah. And I, I just love what you said there. Well, it, it, it mirrors itself so beautifully in Scripture that it's a, it's a book of faith and doubt. Yeah. I mean, I love Peter, for example, because Peter, it's not that, I mean, he obviously has the moment where he doubts in the end of his story, but there's also what his doubt leads him to do is to pull out these very toxic views of Jesus and God <laughs> yeah. that we find in the middle of the Gospels. Peter is like convinced, y'all that Jesus is a warrior king, that he has come to like defeat the Romans with a sword to kill God's enemies. And repeatedly, Jesus is like, no, no, turn the other cheek, no, no, Peter. And it's only by him going through this catastrophic rock bottoming out of doubt and despair and wrestling that we actually find the Peter who writes the letters that we love at the end of scripture, the Peter of Acts who becomes a champion of this sacrificial faith, right? And I think it's beautiful. I mean, he doesn't get there if he does not have that dark night of the soul, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, at the same time, as much as I want everyone here to have an existential crisis... Yeah, let's just um, do that. And it is important to acknowledge the healthy parts of doubt, questioning, or deconstruction. We also probably need to recognize that no human movement is ever all good or all bad. So, from your perspective, are there any pitfalls to constantly questioning one's beliefs? Yeah, I think the, the idea of, of going all in on the deconstruction movement, or all in on just blind faith, are both equally erroneous, right? Um, we have this idea in our theories of development, and there's all sorts of different people who have pioneered this, where I can't think about high-level things if I haven't ate or slept. And we, we've all been there. Uh, some of you are there right now. Like, I have a newborn, and I haven't <laughs> slept, so I'm going to sleep through this message, and God bless you for that, because that's what you need. But, but in all, all honesty, when we think about this idea of developing we can't just go down one road because it creates kind of some monstrosity of what we should be, which is a more balanced person. Mm. And I love this idea of balance because if you think about faith and doubt, it's kind of like this, the center of gravity, that if I'm only leaning on my faith so much that it's all about faith, I'm going to not ever address the doubt. I'm just going to push that aside. It's like standing like this. And Mike, if you would be so kind of... Oh, don't tell me the good times. Yes. See, <laughs> I, can't, I can't do... I can't stay on only faith... Likewise, I can't lean only on my doubts because something will come and push me over. And so most of the time in pastoral roles, I'm dealing with people who come and say, something pushed me over. This event, someone died, something happened, someone was mean to me, someone cut me off in traffic, and now I'm, ex I'm questioning my entire existence of life. I'm like, no, it's not this, it's not him. It's, it's, it is you, but okay, but that's a whole other sermon. It, it's not, it's not the event that pushed you. It is the fact that you were unbalanced oh, and you're not taking good. care of your, both your faiths and your doubts in equal proportions. So you're, you're out of line. That's wise. Yeah. That's incredibly wise. I, you yeah, I think pushing me? I love pushing you. <laughs> I think about, yeah, I love that word balance. Um, and I think, I don't know, that's kind of where I've, I've experienced something very similar as I've kind of witnessed and, and gone through myself this deconstruction movement. And that is how constant deconstruction prevents us from arriving at, I think, what the purpose of the goal of deconstruction should be, which is some form of reconstruction, right? right? And we end up in this space where people are just in this constant state of upheaval, right? They start deconstructing these ideas that they were given, 
but then they never replace any of that, like, what it means to be human. Like, these big questions. How should I live? What is it? How should I navigate this world? Whatever. Like, what is God? It never replaces those ideas with something new. It just is constantly seeking to tear down the old, which I actually think is, like, as unhealthy as it can really get for us and others around it. I mean, one, it makes us just completely unstable, unbalanced. Right. But two, it also can make us, like, totally ineffective at helping other people because we're just never sure of anything. So we don't reconstruct ideas of justice, of mercy giving, of compassion, of why I should be seeking these things in the world. And we fall into apathy. But I think, man, you want to talk about the 21st century. I think the biggest problem with this is that we end up fostering a negational identity hmm. as opposed to an affirmational identity. And I, I want to explain that. what these terms mean. Affirmational identities, this is something I read in a book a long time ago, is the idea that I am defined by affirmations about myself, others, my world, God, etc. Right? I am Mike because I am blank. I am just. I am kind. I am seeking mercy. Right? These are what make up Mike, who I am now, who I want to be, what I am striving for. And if you notice, they're grounded in truths. Right? They're grounded in real things that I want to see in the world and in myself. Hmm. That's healthy identity making, right? It's right. hard to do because you have to figure out what you want to be and who you are, and you're going to have to come to these statements about yourself and seek them. It's going to require self-discovery and wrestling. It's going to be risky because if I start saying I am this and people reject that, then they are rejecting me, and that hurts, right? Right. But it's good. I am who, this is who I am, positively. Negational identity, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. And it's a far easier form of identity building that is the most toxic thing, I think, that we as human beings do in this world. Negational identity is I am me because I am not blank. I am me because I am not them. I am not Republican Democrat. I am Mike because I am not one of those people. I am Mike because I am not like you mm. and y'all. That identity-making is poison, right? I mean, just think about it. It requires no thought or consideration, just distaste for the other. Right. It has no substance, because if the thing I'm opposed to disappears, do I exist anymore? If suddenly there aren't X political party tomorrow, does Mike just poof, seek to exist? I mean, it's empty. It stops existing without an enemy, and it's dangerous. Because when we define ourselves by our will of opposition to another, y'all, we are going to find ways to justify doing just about anything to them. Am I right? That can be the danger of living with constant, exaggerated experiences of deconstruction without moving into reconstruction eventually. We never actually move back into that affirmational identity phase. We just become someone who exists to be opposed to what hurt us, right. what was, we were misled about, what we were taught as a kid, we never get to the other side of tearing everything down. And I just think that's a very toxic way to live. Amen. Jay, thoughts on that? No. Good. Amen. Millennial. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, good. I guess we can kind of move into our last question, and that's yeah. we're going to return to the big one, which is what if we're wrong about our faith? And I mean, I'll, I'll jump into this go one ahead. first. Yep, go ahead. I went through... Uh, deconstruction, I said that, from my childhood faith tradition. And I ended up in a place where actually I'm no longer afraid of this question. I think that's important to acknowledge is that like the reason a lot of us don't like this question is it terrifies us, right? 
It's existential dread incarnate in a single sentence. And I, I think I can only speak for myself. I'm not going to tell you all what to believe. But I can only speak for myself of why I'm not afraid of this anymore. I think, for one, I simply come to view spirituality in many ways as being about fostering humility and an increase in my ability to embrace mystery, which, again, was very different from my childhood, in which it was have certainty about a thousand different things. I think I'm increasingly realizing that spirituality is a lot about learning to be okay with saying, I don't know. Amen. To identify with Job standing before the world went, right? Recognizing that if I really believe in an infinite creator God, then my understanding of that God and these infinite cosmos, of which I am an ant in, will always be fundamentally limited, will always be fundamentally flawed, quite frankly, will always be about my perspective. And y'all, that's okay. Now, I don't think I'm wrong about the things I believe, but that recognition of my limitation increases with me the capacity to acknowledge that I might be Mm. and to not be terrified of that, to in fact see that willingness to say I don't know as spiritual maturity. That's well said. Not weakness, right? But also... This question doesn't scare me anymore because through Reconstruction and that work, I think it's led me to a place where I'm okay no matter what. And I want to make sure I'm clear about this too. You see, I've come to view the story of Scripture as being more than just about fire insurance, as being more than just about escape, escape from this world. Um, I've come to see it as being about the renewal of all things, of creation and humanity, including myself. I get to be a part of that renewal process. This invitation to rediscover as a human being what it means to be truly human again through Jesus Christ, and to, through a power greater than myself, be transformed into that new humanity. Hmm. And y'all, here's the important part. I've come to believe that, and my trust in that story, and its truthfulness, no longer resides in people telling me that I have to believe it. No, through deconstruction and reconstruction, that is now a story that I believe is true through my experience. Through my lived experience, I've come to believe without a shadow of a doubt that following Jesus is the best way for me to live as a human. That it alone has led me to a life defined not by anger and pride and judgmentalism and negational identities, but affirmational ones. Hmm. Peace, justice, serenity, mercy, love. I mean, what I'm trying to say is I believe that this story is true because through Jesus, I've tasted a renewed humanity that is good that is beautiful, that is true, and that is greater than any other means of being human that I have tried to create for myself or other people have given me. Hmm. One that does not hurt people as much as I used to. One that does not fear as much as I used to. One that does not seek what's wrong in this world as much as I used to, right? And that removes the fear of that question. Hmm. Because yes, I've also reconstructed many more beliefs than that. I have come to believe that there is a direction to history. I've come to believe that King Jesus reigns over these cosmos. I've come to define what those terms mean. However, and I don't think those are wrong, but however, if they are, I'm still okay because I've got the firm foundation of the experience of God here and now. That bedrock conviction formed through experience that King Jesus alone is proven capable of saving me from what I could not save myself from resurrecting life out of the death that I sow in my life in this world. Following him alone has led me to a way of being human that's truly life mm. and nothing else has. And on that, I can build a firm house. That's a firm foundation, right? Mm. Just slam the book and just walk off. <laughs> I, I want to piggyback on, on that in a moment. I want to share a quick story about a guy named Blaise Pascal who's 
really an awful person to preach about because he was a <laughs> drunkard and he's a gambler. Um, he's a French guy back in the 1700s, but he's kind of my kind of guy. I'm like, okay, <laughs> he and I could have, you know, play a game of a pinochle and whatever. Um, the, the, the point of this is he was a theologian as well. And he had this idea called the uh, Pascal's Wager, which he says, if you bet everything you have on Jesus, what do you get? Eternal life. You get everything, right? If you bet everything on Jesus and you're wrong, what do you get? Okay, well, nothing, right? You, you lose just a faith of Jesus. Okay, but think of it this way. If you bet everything on not Jesus, on just that this life's about me and my own and I'm the God, what do you get at the end of everything? Well, nothing. And what if you are wrong? Well, you lose out on everything. Hmm. And that, that idea of, of this just simple bet, the simple wager that is... What's, what's, what's to lose if you follow Jesus? Well, I can't go out and party and, and live a life that is all about me. And that's actually better, as Pastor Mike just so eloquently said. And it's come to create in me a, an idea that I constantly remind myself of. It's called the rule of testimony. But I've worked in enough churches that churches really love when a person who's in the, you know, their 40s or 50s who's a tither and who has you know, two and a half kids and they come in with, no drama, no baggage. They love to welcome those people into the flock. Yeah, come on in. Here's a coffee mug that's green. It's beautiful, yeah? We all want it, but we're not new, so we can't have it. Churches rarely want someone who's really truly at the lowest point of their life. They don't want to do the hard work. But as you look through Acts and you read the testimony over and over of Paul, who shares it multiple times in multiple situations, almost it's annoying at the end of Acts. I'm like, okay, I know this story already. Stop sharing your testimony, Paul. But I believe it is said over and over and over to get the point to us that our testimony is constantly being rewritten and refocused and redirected. Mm. And it's okay at a point in your life to say, oh my gosh, I'm having a midlife crisis or a tri-life crisis or a quarter-life crisis. Those are real. And I need to completely change my beliefs and I needed to completely change my life. And I think that's what you've done. Yeah. Is that you, you, you have taken, and not cleanly, not perfectly, but so beautifully said, I'm going to redirect my life towards Jesus Christ because I know what it's like to live the other way. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's where the idea of what if we're wrong, but what if we're right? Mm. We, we have to consider that what we're doing here today has not only an impact in our lives in the moment, but it's going to impact others' lives and impact my life for eternity and that's what I have to grasp and hold on to with both faith and doubt equally. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Hard turn. What? No, it's not a hard turn, actually. Let's eat Jesus. Because, let's eat Jesus. Yeah. yeah let's, let's be cannibals. Um, that what was a, actually what something. A totally normal thing to believe. That's uh, in the early church, you know, what's what the Romans believed that, that they were cannibals eating babies because they heard Jesus was an infant and then they would eat his body and blood. That's what was, that was the, the, what Christians were thought of, the eating babies. So let's have some baby meat. No, I'm no. just kidding. I'm glad that's online. In all honesty, um, this is something that we have faith in is that somehow these elements we have before us this morning are going to somehow bring Christ into us. And that is something that is just such a mystery and so beautiful. As the worship team comes out to get things set up, I want to share just some logistics. We use gluten-free bread. We invite anyone is able to come to this table. You don't have to be a member or an owner of this church, but just profess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the table is open to you. And we invite all to come to receive this gift of what Jesus commands us to do, 
and giving his own body, his own blood for our eternity, his salvation and forgiveness of sins and take it seriously as you come forward. So with that, I'm gonna pray and we'll transition our service towards this time. Once we uh, say amen, the table's open. You may come up to receive at one of the stations here in front of you, whatever you're closest to. Let's pray a blessing over these elements. Father, I thank you for this time where we wrestle with our doubts, but we come with equal parts faith, grasping to you as Thomas did, declaring out of doubt in seeing the holes in your hand and the hole in your side that you are God, resurrected and restored as a pattern of who we will become. Not some far-off deity where we're floating on clouds, but we will have a physical resurrected body that will not perish, but will have everlasting life in your household, in your community, in your model. Lord, we come with faith declaring that we are humble, that we have doubts, but we are humble to seeing that reality come forth. And we take these elements here before us as a remembrance, but also a renewal of our inheritance that we have through you. And so we take a blessing upon this, the bread and the cup, upon the music we'll hear, upon just the moment of coming into your presence with faith and wrestling with the doubts and saying, I take you, Jesus, even to the point of being inside of me. Through this mystery before us, we pray your blessing over these elements and the hands which receive them. We say together, amen. Come, the table is open. <laughs>